Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the early modern period, it was patently clear to everyone that supernatural beings, foremost among them the devil, were at work in the world, intervening in human affairs. But how exactly did such beings manifest themselves? Were they visible or invisible? And how do we make sense of this in an age in which people believed they were living under a providential god? Was such belief in the supernatural confined to ordinary folk or shared by the literate elites? And can we find the origins of beliefs in vampires, zombies and revenants in this age too? And finally, given such beliefs, what is the historically sensitive and appropriate method by which to consider them, as they differ so very much from contemporary conviction? Joining me to kick off our month of specials on supernatural beings in the early modern world is Professor Darren Aldridge, a professor of early modern history at the University of Worcester. Darren Aldridge's books include The Supernatural in Tudor and Stuart England and The Devil, a very short introduction. Professor Aldridge, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Hello, Susanna. It's good to be here. Today we're going to be talking about some of the sort of things that in our modern world constitute fiction. In fact, as you put it, the staples of the fantasy genre, the zombies and vampires, along with things like dragons and witches. And what I was struck by in reading your work is the approach you take to this study, because so often when we think of beliefs in the past about supernatural ideas, we think of the people who held those beliefs as being somehow much more credulous or unintelligent or irrational than ourselves. And your approach is completely different. And it's one that undermines as reductionist the kind of tagline of the 19th century historians, Leopold von Ranke, that the purpose of history is to discover what really happened. So could you perhaps start by explaining your approach to studying supernatural beliefs in the early modern period? My approach is to ask not what really happened when people described apparitions of ghosts or showers of blood or other mysterious phenomena, but rather what did these things mean to the people that described them and how did they make sense of them? That's really the question that I ask. I think if I ask the question what really happened in the context of somebody meeting the devil, for example, I think I'd be doing parapsychology rather than attempting to do history because what matters to me, I think, is the sense that people made of these phenomena. My starting point always as a historian is looking at the lives and the beliefs of rational people, 
we can't really talk about the choices and the actions of men and women in the past if we assume that they are a bit daft. So my starting point really is to assume that people in the past are no less rational than I am, often much smarter than I am, but they believe different things to me and consequently they made sense of the things that they came across or they read about in a way that's often very different to the way that I would make sense of them. But that's not because I'm clever than them. It's because I live in a different context. You've written quite a lot about the devil, and I think we should probably start with him. This is a period in which there is very much a sense that the devil is at work in the world. And I wonder if we should characterise this almost, I know it was a heresy, but almost as a kind of dualism. You've got a kind of interventionist devil personally operating to upset people's lives, just as perhaps in the same way they might have believed that God would step in to help them. I think that sometimes it can seem like a kind of dualism, but it wasn't. And it wasn't because People who thought seriously about the devil's agency, well, they acknowledged that it was considerable. They almost always insisted that the devil did nothing without permission from God. So the devil was always working for God, but their working relationship was terrible. The devil didn't want to work for God. He could only do what he was permitted to do, like any other wicked agent. In that way, through this curious, fascinating, complicated doctrine of providence, dualism was avoided. The devil was always subordinate to God. Nonetheless, the devil could intervene with God's permission in all sorts of interesting and extraordinary ways. And people in the Tudor and Stuart period were alive to these interventions, I think much more than we are. And they incorporated the devil's activity as part of their understanding of the world. And the feeling I get about the devil really is that he helped to expand possibilities. He expanded explanations for people so that things today that we might only interpret in naturalistic ways might also in the past have been understood with reference to the activities of various spirits, but predominantly the spirit that was involved in these expanded understandings of what was going on tended to be the devil. The devil could very physically manifest in the world in corporeal form, wasn't he? What forms did he take and why in this period? The devil theoretically could assume a form that manifested itself to the external senses. But I would quickly caution that most people in this period who thought carefully and wrote about the devil tended to assume that his ordinary operation was invisible. And most of the time, when he did manifest himself, he did so as an invisible spirit of temptation. That said, it was possible, theoretically, for the devil to appear to the outward senses. And when that was the case, he might, for some people, for example, in cases of witchcraft, manifest in the form of what were sometimes described as familiar spirits. Or he might, in different contexts, beguile people in the disguise of an apparition of a saint or a ghost or some other supernatural presence that sought to mislead, to deceive. And in the case of those who believed in the more extreme versions of witchcraft theory, the devil might manifest himself physically to witches in order to 
enter compacts with them or even have sex with them in the most extreme and lurid and unpleasant instances. But those things seem to me to be outriders. Those are unusual manifestations of the devil that people typically did not expect to take place. In this period, people were far more concerned and wrote far more about the devil's activities inside the mind as an unseen agent of temptation. I mean, I'm very struck by you saying people who are thinking seriously about this or writing about this. And of course, that immediately directs us to quite a small slither of society. Do you think that there is a distinction here to be drawn between what the elite educated ranks of society are concluding about demonology and the devil versus the rest of society? Or is this a distinction we need to think of in terms of before and after the Reformation? Or are all of these ways of dividing it up flawed in some way? I think we can think about before and after the Reformation, for sure. And one of the things that happens during the Reformation, I think, is that the devil's role as a spirit of temptation tends, for various reasons, to be emphasised. These include the existence of what were perceived on all sides to be false churches. How does a false church come about? The spirit of delusion, perhaps, was at work. The devil was a spirit of falsehood. He was the father of lies. And so it helped people to understand why seemingly sincere and good Christians, or folk who imagined they were Christians, came to believe in damnable things. So the devil was understood very much as the spirit behind false belief of all kinds. And there's an awful lot of false belief that people are worried about during the Reformation. So I think For that reason and for various others, you can talk about before and after the Reformation with reference to the devil. The devil changes. But I think there's also a distinction to make between what we might call the understandings of ordinary people and the understandings of well-educated, typically Protestant thinkers in England. And the major distinction that strikes me between these two ways of thinking about the devil and indeed spirits of all kinds is that in cheap print at least, and I think in folklore to a large extent also, the devil and other spirits tend to be much more corporeal, tactile, visible. They tend to interact in a very direct and sometimes physical fashion with real people. That's true, I think, of angels. I think it's true of ghosts as well, fairies, all manner of spirits that people described in ballads and other forms of cheap print. Whereas educated folk, with one or two exceptions, did not discard the possibility that spirits might appear in this way. But they were much more interested in spirits as invisible entities, as what Joseph Glanville described in the later 17th century as invisible intelligent agents at large in the world. And that idea of the devil and other spirits as invisible intelligent agents, I think was much more important and perhaps the main way of understanding these things among educated folk, whereas for the rest of the population, for ordinary people, the devil and other spirits tended to be much more tangible, at least in the records that survive and certainly in the printed sources that are still with us from that time. And in that invisible sphere of operation, the activity of the devil and his demons could be insidious. And as I understand it, they could place ideas in the human mind. Is this how they explain melancholy, do you think? 
I think the capacity for the devil to place thoughts in people's minds was part of the understanding of temptation in this period. Because one of the things that the devil could do as a deceiver was intrude his own ideas into the heads of mortals in such an insidious way and so well disguised that it was often difficult to distinguish these satanic cognitions from the subject's own cognitions. And in this way, by invisibly intervening in human thought processes, the devil could induce people towards doing bad things, having bad thoughts, and also could pluck at our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses as part of our fallen nature. The devil invisibly intruding indiscernible satanic thoughts into the mind was part of temptation. And that's an insidious operation. But also the devil was believed sometimes to flash hideous, obscene, shocking, revolting ideas suddenly into people's heads. And this was much less subtle, and it seems to me from the devil's perspective rather less effective, because when people received these thunderbolts of obscenity or blasphemy or whatever, they were obviously satanic. They came from somewhere else. They seemed not to be insidious and possibly one's own thought but actually something that shocked, something that repelled. And the pastoral theology that deals with this advised people, if this happens to you, if you have a sudden, shocking, terrible thought, then first, it may not be your thought. It's possible that it comes from somewhere else. And if you are shocked by this thing that suddenly flashes into your mind, that's good, because it indicates that you are not going to be inveigled by the devil into acquiescing in this dreadful idea. It was possible for early modern folk, completely rationally, to imagine foreign thoughts inside their own minds. And today, that understanding of one's own mind might easily be mistaken for a symptom of mental illness. And I think that indicates the separation between ourselves and those in the fairly remote past, for whom the agency of invisible intelligence spirits was alive. It was a real thing. It was possible to have what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, has called an unbuffered mind. A mind that was not self-contained, but was open to occult influences of various kinds, including, perhaps most importantly, the insinuations and occasionally the thunderstrikes of evil spirits. I mean, it's actually sort of quite helpful, isn't it, to be able to think well, that evil thing I thought, it wasn't me. And I'm being tempted towards something, but this isn't precisely who I am. You know, it actually is a useful mechanism to think about oneself as actually being unimpeached by these images that are coming at you. Plausible deniability. Most of the time when typically quite devout Protestants reflected upon these satanic insinuations in their minds, they didn't think that the devil's involvement got them off the hook because they were strongly aware of their own fallen nature and the idea that men and women are unutterably sinful by nature was threaded into Protestant understandings of humankind. And it was only really through the intervention of God, through God's grace, that men and women might obtain salvation. They could never merit it, but they might, through God's goodness, be made worthy. So I don't think that typically 
English Protestants used the devil as a splitting mechanism. That said, people, even today, will sometimes suddenly, shockingly, have strange thoughts in their minds. It certainly happens to me. It happens to lots of people I talk to about this. And I think that the idea of satanic interventions of that kind may simply have helped people to understand something that happens, I suspect, quite commonly as part of human consciousness. And at the moment, when these things happen, we tend probably not to talk about them very much. (laughs) Because we don't really have a language for understanding some of the strange thoughts that float into our minds. Now, one thing that this understanding of the devil did give people in the past was a way at least of making sense of those experiences. But I think, by and large, the devil was not used as a mechanism to shove off responsibility. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you'll want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. What then about the manifestation of the devil in the form of demons? I know that James the Sixth and the Firsts, or James the Sixth when he wrote it, Demonology talks about incubi and succubi, male and female forms of demons respectively. What should we know about them? And this is perhaps a little bit ahistorical, but I wondered as I was thinking about it, whether we should see them as sort of an early example of what becomes known as a vampire. I think in one sense, the kind of demonic interventions that King James sometimes mentioned related directly to vampire beliefs in that James, interestingly, and perhaps somewhat atypically, claimed that it was possible for demons to possess the bodies of the dead. And he goes into a little detail about this. He suggests, for instance, that this could happen to any dead person (laughs) with God's permission, if the devil were inclined and permitted to take possession of the body. And I think the instance that James uses is possessed corpses actually opening the doors of people's houses. And I think that is similar to the theological understanding of what became known later as vampires or revenants. They were simply corpses, not resurrected by the devil, but reanimated, possessed, occupied, and I imagine jerked about like grotesque puppets by evil spirits. And I think in that regard, yes, James is 
tapping into a tradition that is associated with the vampire as an animated corpse brought back not to life but to some grotesque semblance of life by its occupation by the devil. I think in other respects James and most early modern writers on witchcraft were confronted with something of a problem when it came to the physical manifestations of the devil for the reasons I've already touched upon. In English demonology, certainly, and I'm thinking here of people like William Perkins and Thomas Cooper a little bit later, the expectation that the devil was primarily a spiritual entity who operated normally inside the mind led to the development of the idea of the satanic pact between the devil and the witch is something that could happen inside the mind. It didn't require any external manifestation of the devil at all. And I think that is rather indicative of the emphasis within English Protestantism of an invisible devil as a spirit of temptation. It makes a problem, I think, for people who want to take seriously the allegations of ordinary people against supposed witches in this period, because ordinary people, as I've indicated already, tended to imagine spirits or demon-like wicked creatures that may or may not have been manifestations of the devil in much more concrete terms. When ordinary people thought about witches and the spirits that were attached to witches, they tended to think of them as things that could scuttle down the chimney or come in through the window or appear in a field when you're walking at night. And that isn't really the way that educated, devout English Protestants thought about the devil. It was quite hard to square those two understandings. Do we have evidence of popular belief in revenants in I don't know, the undead, the walking dead, zombies, whatever you want to call them today, as well as seeing it represented in some high-level demonologies like that by King James? I think in the late Middle Ages, there are in some collections of fabulous stories, accounts of zombie-like creatures that were understood as the roaming dead, probably possessed by evil spirits, and often spreading diseases and just appearing in, as you can imagine, hideous, stinking forms. I don't know of many accounts of that type that survive from the later period that is my main business. I wouldn't be surprised if such stories were still circulating, but I don't know of them in any detail. The idea of the reanimated corpse in my own research has occurred seldom, and when you come across it tends to be as a theoretical option in the work of scholars like King James. And I think Thomas Brown, a bit later in the 1640s, also considers the possibility that demons might sometimes occupy the bodies of corpses. But that's really quite an exotic idea that maybe wasn't even mainstream for Protestant intellectuals in this period. And possibly it persisted in popular culture. I've not come across much evidence of it, I have to say. What I've come across evidence for is not the determinant of whether or not things were believed in at the time. In some of your work, without at all sort of diminishing or dismissing early modern ideas, you've thought about how modern medical research can give a sort of different conceptual framework to some of these ideas of what people might have thought of as revenants or vampires at the time. How, in other words, can different conceptual frameworks explain the same phenomenon? I think it happens all the time. People have spooky experiences. And back at the turn of the last century, William James took the view that what he described as religious experiences, often involving supernatural presences of various kinds, had the quality of seeming intensely real to those that experienced them. 
And James, at least, was clear that these are real things. People really have these experiences. The, the question that follows is, are these merely events inside the mind, or do they relate to something that's going on externally? And as a naturalist myself, I would say, no, we have to assume that these things happen only inside the mind. That said, if we assume that spooky experiences happen to various people at different times, in different contexts, then yes, those spooky experiences could be framed, they could be made sense of in various ways. And a good example of this is a quite common sleep disorder that today I think is normally described as sleep paralysis disorder. And it affects a sizable minority of the population. It's affected myself and what happens is that you wake up and you find yourself unable to move in the most mild versions of this syndrome. In more extreme cases, you might wake up and feel that there's a pressure on your chest. And in the worst cases, you might wake up with this pressure on your chest and feel terrified. You might imagine that something dreadful is coming towards you. And that experience, which today is recognised as sleep paralysis disorder, and is explained as a sleep dysfunction, was described by people in the early modern period variously as a kind of bewitchment. It crops up sometimes in accusations of witchcraft. And also, I think, mostly in Eastern Europe, and perhaps a bit later in the 18th century, those same symptoms are described as vampire attacks. And, of course, those symptoms could be understood as simply an assault by the devil involving neither vampires or witches. And if you've had the experience, I think you would vouch that actually that's pretty convincing explanation, actually. It's quite emotionally satisfying because the experience is rather terrifying. Unfortunately for me, I don't have those explanations available. Or maybe I should say it's fortunate for me that I don't. I have to rely upon what I understand of modern sleep science. All that I've got to explain these things is this thing I call sleep paralysis disorder. But that does illustrate, I think, the way in which identical symptoms in different contexts at different times might be understood quite rationally within the framework of beliefs within those particular times. But we can assume that people are describing essentially the same thing. You mentioned early on providence, and I wonder if you can sort of make sense for me of the relationship between providence and all this interventionist supernatural activity, the extent to which the devil is permitted to intervene by God. In terms of early modern thinking, how did this all add up? The doctrine of providence had all kinds of profound consequences for the way that people understood the world. One of these was that it provided a means by which extraordinary sights and events might be understood. For instance, during the English Civil Wars, there were accounts of armies fighting battles in the sky, most famously above the site of the Battle of Edge Hill in 1642. Now, those remarkable and spooky, we might say supernatural, occurrences could be understood within the framing of providence as divine portents or warnings or indications of God's displeasure because God was capable as the governor of the world sometimes to send extraordinary signs of this kind in order to communicate something important to men and women. One thing that providence did was 
provide a rational framework, I think, for making sense of extraordinary reports of this kind. Now, interestingly, another effect of providence, it seems to me, was actually to imbue a supernatural significance, a religious significance, to what we might think of as mundane events. A dramatic storm that perhaps accompanied a person's death might be understood as simply a storm or as something providential. It might betoken the displeasure of God at the person's life, or it might indicate that nature itself, with God's permission, was expressing its sadness at the passing of this person. When Oliver Cromwell died in 1658, a few days earlier there was a terrible storm, which was variously reported in providential terms by Cromwell's enemies as signs of the devil coming to reclaim him with God's permission, or as an indication of the earth itself mourning the death of this great leader. So providence could be understood in different ways that were attached to things that perhaps today we wouldn't even think of in supernatural terms at all, because after all, it was just a storm a few days before somebody died. So one of the effects of providential thinking, I think, was to instill in natural events, and sometimes we might think today really quite commonplace events, a religious meaning. So providence could make sense of the extraordinary, but also it could make the apparently ordinary significant in quasi-supernatural ways. Well, thank you for this tour around the gobsmackingly strange beliefs of a previous age that nevertheless gives us a way into understanding their world. And as you said at the very beginning of considering not exactly what happened, but what it meant to them. It's been fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.